Welcome, my faithful dozen. This is to be determined with Devin Cunningham, and that would be me. We have an awesome episode today. I'm very excited to share it with you, so we're not going to have that many announcements. We're going to get right to it, and the church said amen. Uh, first off, I want to thank everybody who came out to the event at the Nest last month in August. It was such a wonderful crowd, and uh, it just meant so much to the folks at the Nest and myself and all the artists who came out. Of course, my grandparents, I know a lot of you came for them, and I uh, just wanted to thank you again for coming and showing support. The next one is in October, October the 29th. We're going to have Jeremy and Jamin Hart. We're also going to have uh, Master's Legacy Quartet will be singing, as well as the Smith family. It's just going to be another fantastic evening at the Nest, and you're not going to want to miss it, so mark it down. October the 29th, doors open at 6.30, concert starts at 7. And, uh, no, concert starts at 6.30? I'll have that down somewhere. <laughs> I should have this all figured out by now, but I don't, because me. All right, uh, Mark Conference was fantastic. I just want to encourage anybody who uh, was not there Go online to Calvary or call the church office. Get a hold of voiceandvision.com. Get a uh, down. You can order the physical copy uh, CD of the service, of the sermon. All the sermons were just absolutely fantastic, life-changing, encouraging, convicting all at the same time. That's what good sermons do. And I got to show a little bias because this past... Sunday was just fantastic. Our pastor was out of town, and we always hate it when he's gone, um, but we were so fortunate to have uh, Brother Gerald Staten with us. He just blew it out of the park, both services. And we had the Wilbanks with us Sunday night, and they just did a fantastic job. I love the Wilbanks. Uh, but I want to tell you that the sermons from Brother Staten were just fantastic. If you can, visit calvarytabindy.org and uh, listen to those sermons. They will, they will rock the world. Even though, you know, I felt that they were, you know, and he said it, they were geared, geared uh, a lot towards us, the home folk. But I know that will bless anybody who listens. And I think that's all I'm going to have for this um uh, round of announcements. Let's get right to it. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel William Fullerton, retired. Um, he is an outstanding individual. Just has a countenance about him that uh, just puts you right at ease. He's a friendly man and he's a good singer. Uh, but I got to tell you, the man has an amazing testimony been literally through fire and I am so glad that he is willing or uh, was willing to sit down with us and share his testimony about uh, his childhood, his um, return to church, to <laughs> his time serving in Vietnam, to dealing with life after war. It's uh, it's going to be a good one. So, without further ado, buckle up. Let's get to it. 
Okay. Oh, man. Once again, I apologize for being late and forgetting the mic and forgetting my notes. That's okay. And luckily, I, you know, thank God I remembered that we were actually doing this today. Um, but uh, you doing all right today? I'm doing well. Doing well. Good. I'm trying to remember. Um, you're retired. When did you retire? It was this year? November of last year. Of last year? No, I re it's my uh, retirement from uh, working at the blood center. Yeah. Okay. What did you do at the blood center there? I was the uh, uh, customer service or support operations type manager for the laboratories. Um, we also did testing not just for the Indiana blood center, uh, but this testing has grown to be quite expensive. Uh, and so... Uh, we did a lot of the blood centers from all around the country are consolidating in having all the testing done in one place. So that way you get economies of scale and you can reduce the overall costs per unit for the testing of the blood. That went way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you do this for? Uh, when I retired from the military. I yeah. went to work. You went to work there. At the blood center. I started out on the night shift as a tech ah. and worked my way up. Uh, to the different roles and finally became the operations manager. And I was the operations manager for five years before I retired. So, like, but how long were you there? Well, the I was there uh, from, uh, I, I started work there in 2000, October of 2000. Now, you all had a, a big hand in uh, the relief efforts for one of the hur hurricanes that hit. Hurricane, hurricane hit in Texas uh, yeah. just recently. Yeah. Um, or last year, I guess. Uh, and it, it lingered over Houston for a long time and destroyed a lot of Houston and Galveston. And then it moved slowly east along the coast, took into Louisiana and what have you. Uh, all of that, uh, we played, uh, it wiped out their hospital and blood centers. Yeah. And so they couldn't do any testing down there. And so, and of course, the blood donors were scattered to the four winds. And so they had no blood for people who needed it in the hospital centers. Yeah. And so they were getting it from elsewhere. And so we, uh, sent a lot of blood by helicopter. Uh, they, the other thing is they couldn't get it into the airports. Uh, so we sent it to an airport that was 50 miles away from Galveston. And they miles, just drove 50 it miles to the west. And we sent it by airplane there, and then uh, Black Hawk Army helicopters nice. flew it from there the 50 miles the rest of the way into the hospital. Hmm. And they had video actually showing the boxes of being taken off the helicopter and put into trucks. Uh, National Guard vehicles, and it had Indiana Blood Center on central on the side. There we go. Right. Um, so, did you all were you all involved with Katrina as well? Yes, we were involved with Katrina as well uh, in sending blood down there yeah. into New Orleans. And kind of the same, the same, same capacity, yeah. the same capacity. And, and blood centers around the country are known for that kind of thing. Uh, to where, as one hospital may be really short of O negatives, or yeah. one blood center. Uh, and so they, they just they, share, they share the get wealth. it from others. Yeah. And so they'll share it back and forth. Yeah. Uh, there are two different large groups. There's the uh, American Red Cross, uh, which is a total separate entity from the private independent blood centers. Uh, they do about 45% of the nation's blood supply. The blood centers that are spread around the country uh, do uh, the rest. So are you, you're from Indiana, right? Uh, I was not born here. You were, where were you born? I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. What did your parents do? Uh, my mother, uh, for her early years when I was born, uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. Okay. Uh, my dad worked at uh, a box where they made corrugated boxes. And all of this was uh, right there in uh, just north downtown St. Louis area. Uh, we lived in a 
uh, on North Broadway, above a store. We had an apartment above the store What's, on the first floor. What was the store? It was just like a, a market. Oh, market, okay. Just a market. Then they kind of like a Seven Eleven would be. Okay. Except what Seven Eleven in nineteen fifty one. St. Louis General. You yeah. Know. But this is nineteen fifty one. We're talking, uh, and so then our laundry was in the basement. Our, our, we had the basement. We had a coal furnace in the basement that we manned, uh, and, it, and that was the furnace for the store and the where we lived upstairs above wow. the store. So when did you all? What did your dad do? Uh, my dad uh, was uh, worked as a he was manager of the shipping department for this corrugated box company. They made boxes, cardboard boxes. Okay. And shipped them out to wherever who bought, bought the cardboard boxes, and he uh, ran the shipping docks for that company. All right. For a long while. So uh, he, the man made a living. He, he made a living. Did I, you have any brothers or sisters? I am the oldest of nine. Oldest of nine. Well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let me shake your hand. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and I'm still the big dog of the family. I'm sure you are. Yes, I am. I'm sure you I, are. I, and I wear that uh, mantle uh, proudly. Uh, but uh, there's only seven of us left. Two have gone on. Okay. Uh, but uh, I'm the oldest, and I'm still around. May I ask a rude question? Certainly. How old are you? I am uh, 66. I will be 67. You and, thought you you would think I would know that, but I, I, <laughs> I probably have heard this before. But I I will it. be 67 in a couple of weeks. Wow. When's your birthday? August the 29th. Okay. Let me give me a second. Let me look at my calendar here. Okay. So that's adding session. Okay, so it's not that. Oh, sh okay. So yours. Oh no, you, this episode will be released. Scheduled. Okay, for the listeners, it's scheduled to be released September. Uh oh, no, yeah, September eleventh. Oh, how appropriate can that be? That is very appropriate. Uh, September eleventh wow. played a big part in my life. So yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It. Uh, well, okay. So let me make a note of that so we can come back to it. But that's, wow, that's amazing. I did not even realize that when I marked it down in the calendar. I forgot. I'm sorry, America, for a second. I'm not supposed to forget, but I forgot. Um, so your family's growing up in St. Louis. When did you, did you, when did you make your way to the Hoosier State? Well, uh, interesting uh, timeline of events on all of that. Um, uh, I was born in, uh, in 1951. Uh, and before that, my, my mother was 15 years old when she got married. Wow. My, my dad was 11 years older than her, 13 years older than her. He was a World War II veteran. Uh, he thought he really robbed the cradle. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, mom was 15, Yeesh. and I was born when she was 16. Okay. Okay, so I can always tell how old my mother was because she was 16 years older than I. Yeah. Okay, uh, but now. then she had uh, three children before she was 20. Okay. And there's not very many ladies in today's society that can say that, nor should they be saying that. No, no. We don't want them to be saying that. <laughs> uh, but uh, she, but she ended up with nine children, um, and they were all uh, probably, I think they're uh, about 16 years apart from oldest to youngest. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So about one a year. Part near. Yeah. yeah. Right in that area. Uh, after 16, she was kind of like, okay, I'd done. Yeah, after nine uh, kids, she was kind of like, yeah, I think I'll stop. Don't this. touch me again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of like that. Now, your dad, a World War II veteran, That's Brother Oakley, um, fought, you know, incredible battle. You know, our listeners, hopefully they've listened to his story. It, I've interviewed him. And uh, what was your dad like? You know, what did... 
1951, so the war's been over. What was that like? For, for to live in the same home as a veteran of World War II? Well, it was interesting because uh, my dad never really spoke of it at all. Never talked about it. I found the out things about it much later in life uh, after I had uh, grown and was, had been taken into the service and came home from Vietnam. Uh, we sat at the dining room table one day over Thanksgiving. I started off that very morning. I had been home from Vietnam less than a few couple months. And... Uh, and was sitting at the dining room table and drinking coffee one morning, and Dad proceeded to tell me everything I had seen and done. He says, "Let me tell you, son. What? Let me tell you what you saw. Let me tell you how you responded. Let me." And he told me from his own experiences, and he was dead on. Uh, he, uh, my dad, was a Marine uh, in World War II in the Pacific, wow. uh, against, fighting against the Japanese. Uh, he stormed uh, a number of beaches. Yeah. And went ashore at Guadalcanal, and actually, uh, he was in the. He said he was in the third wave that went ashore at Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. And when he went ashore, he walked uh, through the to shore on the bodies of dead Marines that had died in the. Oh my God! And so the vivid memory. He was wounded there. No, he was wounded at Iwo Jima. I'm sorry. Uh, he uh, running from the shore into the tree lines, and and uh, the guy running next to him uh, stepped on a mine. Obliterated him, but Dad was uh, peppered with shrapnel from the waist down, uh, and from that point on, then he spent went back to me nine months in uh, hospital in Hawaii before he ever came back to the mainland. Wow! Uh, and that this the little bit I know of his experiences. He never really talked about it much. Uh, and most veterans don't uh, talk about true combat experiences. Um, I speak of mine for one reason. And I don't speak of it um, just out and, and just talk about it. No, yeah. But if someone asks me, I will tell them. And it came at the, because uh, a number of years ago, I was in a service, a, a service, and the minister was preaching, and he said, many of you have had miracles in your life, and you don't talk about them. You should talk about them because the things that God did for you that led you through that crisis and gave you a miracle— could impact and assist others coming up behind you. Yeah. Uh, and can let them know, if nothing else, that God is there. He will help you and lead you and guide you, shield you or deliver you or give you comfort in what you have to go through. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that stuck with me. And from that time forward, I have agreed to speak of my experiences um, only in, in that kind of setting. If someone asks me something about it, yeah. uh, then I'll speak to it. And I may bring it up if, if I'm talking with someone and they're struggling with an issue. I may tell them a story from my life that, that might help them. Uh, but my dad never did that. My dad was a very introverted man and never really spoke of his own life. Do you think yourself? Do you think of yourself as an introverted man? No, not really. No, I don't think you are. No, no, no. I, don't think, <laughs> no, uh, I was. As growing up as a child. Really? Really? I was very introverted. I had been... Uh, picked on and ridiculed and beat up when I was coming up through school. I, I was just a little, I was 125 pounds soaking wet when I graduated from high school. Man. Uh, we were poor. We didn't have anything. I uh, went to school in uh, uh, clean clothes, but they were by no means new. Yeah. Some of my jeans had patches. Yeah. Uh, and I actually had the principal, uh, one time when I was in high school, principal, I remember his name to this day. I have high regard for that man, uh, but if you call high being on the negative side, okay. uh, he uh, he told me one day, he said, why don't you wear newer clothes, better clothes to school? 
and I uh, and it kind of hit me for a minute. And I just I, I, somehow the Lord must have helped me, even though I didn't I wasn't in church then. I told him, I said, "Well, sir, this is all I have. We keep them clean, but if you want to give me new clothes, I'll gladly wear them." Yeah. And that was the last I heard of it. And he never said another That's word. Right. In fact, he never spoke to me the rest of my time in high school. <laughs> That's a pretty good idea. Yeah. But, but that but, but you know that was just kind of the that was kind of my life in high school, and I just dealt with it. I just yeah. you know just the way it was. I, I had a knife. I would work part time. You had a knife. I, no, no, no. I worked part time in a, a place in Waynetown, Indiana, at that time where we lived. Had a slot. So drive. you're in Indiana at this point. At this time, okay. I'm in Indiana in high school. I uh, had a, 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 what they call slot track, where they had those 124 scale cars on electric tracks, and they'd run them around the track, and we'd race. And I worked there okay. part time, uh, running out track time for people to come in. And um, my parents' boss's kid. Came into the place and wanted he wanted to rent so much time on track number whatever, but yeah. the, but the track was already rented out and he didn't like the idea that I wouldn't give it to him. So he actually uh, pulled out a pocket knife and tried to stab me in the stomach, and and I I put my arms there and he crossed my I got my arms he got my arms instead. So I was actually even in a knife fight in high school and then you know nice yeah yeah so it was it was not a fun time of life. <laughs> so I uh, I was almost in a knife fight uh, in high school I was. Uh, when I went to school in Juliet, I was uh, put in a program where I would help kids that were about to be suspended or expelled at some point. They would have to come to a session with me and a couple other students, and we would sit, me or one of the other, I don't know what you would call it, uh, counselors, but in kind of a minimal term, uh, we would just uh, sit down with the two parties and we'd try and encourage them to talk this out. And, but I would have to go during the school day, get them from class. If they came with me and sat through the session, they weren't expended, uh, uh, expelled or suspended. Well, one time I go get this kid. Um, teacher knows what I'm there for, sends him out. But the kid refuses to come with me. And the teacher and I are telling him, like, look, man, like, you don't have to come. But if you don't, they're not going to let you back in the building tomorrow. Or if you show up, you're going to be turned away. You might go to juvie. Just just come. Sit down. Let's talk. And finally, he's like, okay, but let's move. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. So uh, we get out in the hallway. We didn't make three steps till some uh, three other kids came out of nowhere and just start whooping on this kid that I'm trying to get to the session. And one of them uh, had a knife. But the teacher saw it happen, and the teacher came out of nowhere and took down that little boy with a knife. And I'm just sitting there wide-eyed going, I uh, think I should retire from this. This is uh, a bit much for me. Uh, a bit more than you signed up for. Yeah, yeah, not what I signed up for. Of course, it, it's a little insane to think about it, but uh, it was an experience. So that was my close encounter with a nice fight, but I was uh, – more or less just a really close witness to everything. <laughs> um, so you're in Indiana, and your parents, you have nine kids. When, well, not yet. Did, when did you graduate high school? 1970. 1970, okay. Ooh, okay. Uh, a few days ago. Just a, few, <laughs> just a minute ago. Uh, when, when did you sign up for the military? I didn't sign up. I was drafted. You were drafted? Uh, yes, I was, I was drafted. Uh, 
I would probably would not have signed up for the military on my own. That was the farthest thing from my mind uh, at, at the time. Vietnam was going on, and I wasn't too interested in it. I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. Uh, but the military was not uh, in my forte. Uh, by that time, uh, I had gotten in church. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Let's let's touch on that real quick before we go into okay. the military. What was your – did you all go to a church in St. Louis, or did that happen when you moved? Well, actually, uh, my parents were in church oh, okay. your parents when, when were I in was church. born. When I was first born, my parents were in church. And uh, they uh, actually went to a church pastored by Reverend Roy Pillow and another gentleman called Brother Black, which I don't know for certain was the – father of the Brother Black that eventually led the large church there in St. Louis. Okay. I think maybe what, but at that time, it was a little storefront church on North Broadway, not too far from where we lived. Uh, my uh, dad played a Gibson guitar, a string, nice. a string guitar. Mom played a steel guitar. Oh. Uh, they actually played and sang on the radio for Brother Black in oh. St. Louis wow. for a time. So you get it honest. I, I because guess I do. <laughs> I don't, our listeners won't know this because I, I'm mentioning it now, uh, Bill Fullerton is in uh, a group with me here at uh, Calvary Tabernacle here in Indianapolis called Good News. And it's a group of six singers. And uh, Bill is one of our baritones and sings baritone with Matt Denny, who's been on the program before with Master's Legacy. But we have a good time. Uh, We sing a whole bunch of Southern gospel music, which Bill is just peachy king to do. I love it. I do love it. I, <laughs> so, I thoroughly enjoy singing in that group, and I enjoy that genre of music. Well, God help us, because we do we what we can put a song together pretty well, but man, I th- we have so much fun during the practice. It's a surprise that we get anything done. I have to agree with that. Yeah, I the conversation rabbit trails so fast. Uh, my parents, though, uh, they, they got it all started, I guess. They, yeah. they uh, sang, and, and I can remember uh, a rev- the pastor, Reverend Roy Pillow, would come over to our place at times, and, and he would sit there, and I was just a little kid, and he would set me on his knee and, and ask me to sing the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. And I would sing it for him. Uh, only, only I sang it, hotsy dotsy, hotsy dotsy do. Instead of, I shall not be, I shall not be moved. I shall not be, I shall not, just like a tree living by the way. Yeah. But that's all I think, hotsy dotsy, hotsy, that's all I knew. But so, so how, I, I can't figure out where where that fits in, so sing it. Well, uh, hotsy dotsy, hotsy dotsy <laughs> <Okay>. do, hotsy <laughs> dotsy, hotsy dotsy, just like a tree planted by the water, hotsy dotsy do, that was how I sang. Oh, man. And if I would do it that for anything. shot up on the charts. He would give me a nickel every time I did it. Oh, well. And okay. so I was making, I was rolling in the cash. Hotsy dotsy whenever you want it, preacher. This is like 1953 or four. Wow. And so, you know, I, I was two or three years old, probably. Wow. Just moving up there. And, uh, uh, and so already then, an entrepreneur. I was, so I was singing at the age of yeah. three. Good for you. Uh, and it just kind of hung on. But then uh, it was after that time. I don't know. I must have been maybe four. And mom, in her infinite wisdom, went out and bought a television. Oh, I brought it into the house. Dad came home from work, and he was fit to be tied. Uh, so he told her, he said, either the television goes or I go. Oh. And she said, well, the television stays so you can pack your bags. And so he decided he wasn't going to leave after all. He, she called him bluff, I guess. I remember this clear as day. I was sitting on the floor in front of this TV. My dad's name was Felix. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Uh, and I was sitting on the floor watching Felix the Cat uh-huh. cartoon on television. <laughs> and so it just stuck with me because of that name connection. Uh, and so then he finally gave down that. So he just sat down and started watching TV with us. And shortly after that, I think, uh, wasn't too long after that, they both backslid out of church. Oh. Okay. And they were out of church. Are we blaming the television? I think we're blaming Felix the Cat. Okay, yes. all right, that's fine. I think that's probably that's where that fair, comes from. Fair, fair. Uh, but uh, I can't say that that's what caused it, but I am saying that it, they did concur. Both. We'll save that for another episode. We'll, we'll say that they kind of went at the same time. Uh, and then uh, life happened. We moved out of out of St. Louis into East St. Louis, and then a little bit further east each time we moved. For uh, various reasons, uh, Dad had lost his job, and he was oh, trying wow. to pick up work here, there, and yon. Um, and so we moved every other month to avoid the rent, and we just kind of kept going. And we finally ended up in Indiana when I was probably in the third grade. Okay. Yeah. So you're in Indiana. In, in Waynetown, Indiana, which is about 10 miles west of Crawfordsville yeah. on I-74. Which is close to Brownsburg. Well, yeah. Well, Brownsburg is... Closer to Indianapolis. Uh, oh, than Crawfordsville? Yeah, it's okay. probably uh, 30, 25, 30. Oh, I'm thinking of Crawfordsville Road. That's what I'm yeah, thinking. Crawfordville Road. Yeah, 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 but yeah, Crawfordville, yeah. Indiana is further west. Okay, good deal. Yeah. And so then we lived in Waynetown, a little town of about 1,000 people. Uh, I like to tell people that I graduated 13th in my high school class. I just don't tell too many that there was only 25 of us. Well, okay. <laughs> well, you didn't. <laughs> you've only told who's ever listening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, when did you. When was church re there uh, was, int- uh, introduced? Uh, I was uh, uh, let me think. Yeah, I was sixteen, like that, uh, fifteen, nineteen sixty six. I was fifteen years old, uh, and during the ensuing years, my dad had become an alcoholic. Uh, was brutal to the family. Uh, uh, he he smoked uh, three cig- packs of cigarettes a day, and every Friday night he would sit down in front of the television and drink an entire case. That this is uh, 24 bottles of Pabst Blue Ribbon beer. And he'd drink the whole case in one sitting. Uh, you'd never know he was drunk. Well, he was determined. But you, but he would be mean. Uh, and if anybody got, if anybody said something he heard, and he didn't want you to hear anybody talking, or if you walked between him and the television set, or uh, anything that set him off, uh, he he was just he was vicious and would just literally beat. He never touched mom, interestingly enough. Now, I don't know why he never touched mom, but us kids were free game. Uh, and at the age of 15, uh, I mean, he would he would take after us with a big broom handle over. Uh, he uh, And I frequently would gather up my sisters and my younger brother and, and show them into the closet and shut the door. And I would stand holding the closet door shut, facing the closet door, while he would beat on me from behind. Uh, and this went on many times. Uh, he would take a belt, double it over, and hit me with the buckle end of the double rover belt and leave welts, bloody welts up and down my legs, up and, you know, through my clothes. Um, and this went on for, uh, probably three years. Uh, at the age of, um, 15, after one of these beatings and broken a broom handle across my back, I turned to him and I told him, I said that, I said the very word that that's the last time Never do it again. If you ever lay a hand on one of us kids again, I will kill you. I promise you, I will kill you. I know where the butcher knives are in this house, and you've got to sleep sometime. I will kill you. I do believe that he actually believed me, because he never did it again after that. And it wasn't too long after that. Maybe just, th- that would have happened probably midsummer during summer vacation, but school. And right after school started, he took us to um, the church in Crawfordsville, 
to a Sunday school contest. Um, and this was at Mother N.L. Holland's church in Crawfordsville. And uh, he took us there for, and uh, took us kids. And uh, he, we went to church there. He stayed for about three weeks, and then he went back out again. But my oldest sister and I stuck. All right. We got baptized in 1966. And two and a half months later, I got the Holy Ghost in wow. 1966. In November of 66, I got the Holy Ghost Amen. at the church in Crawfordsville. And so that's how church was introduced back into us. Uh, but there again, mom and dad were back out again right after that. So I, I like to say uh, that God is a just-in-time God in that he, just in time, just before I went to prison for killing my dad, just in time, he introduced me to church. And three weeks later, dad was gone, but I was there. Yeah. And I was captured. Yeah. And, there, and from that point... Uh, Things happened in life, you know, all kinds of, there, there, you know, it still wasn't a smooth road, but what was I going to go back to? Exactly. I never could find a good reason to backslide because where was I going to go? Back to the beatings and back to all of that. I, you know, I, I just didn't. And, and, and it always rang true with me that there was nowhere else to go. And this was the best thing that had ever happened to me. And so at the age of 15, I got in church. Wow. In Crawford. Wow. Been there ever since. What grace. <laughs> what grace. Grace indeed. Grace indeed. So you get there four years and you've put down roots at this church in Crawfordsville yes. and you've built relationships, mm -hmm. found a church family, and then you're drafted. And then I'm drafted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, I, and I often wondered about it at the time. Uh, there was another young man in our church that the pastor went to the draft board and uh, worked with the draft board in some way and got him a classification where he wasn't drafted uh, just a year before. And so uh, when it came my turn and I got my draft up, I got signed up, he didn't do that for me. Oh. He never did that for me. He never went to the draft board. Uh, I was classified as a 1AO, a conscientious objector to bearing arms. I didn't want to kill anybody, but you know, if I wanted me to serve, I'd go. Um, that changed later, but you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> circumstances. Uh, um, and so I was drafted in. And it's not that I held a grudge because I tried not ever to do that against my pastor, yeah. but I often wondered why. Why did he protect the other man but not me? And I often wondered that. And that puzzled me for years. Hmm. I found out much later. You know. Okay, well, I'm going to have to make a note here real quick. Come back to that. Um, so, how fast did it move after you were drafted? Uh, I, w I was drafted uh, in the um, the day before I was supposed to leave. I got my draft notice and I was inducted. Actually, uh, the first or the second day of January uh, of seventy one. Into what branch? Army. Into the, the army. army. Uh, and on um, that was the second. And so on New Year's Day. Or, yeah, New Year's Day, January 1st, um, took off on a drive, didn't know where I was going. I, I knew I was gone the next day, and I, I didn't know what life had in store for me anymore. I was really confused. I took off driving, and I drove east. I left Crawfordsville, Indiana, didn't know where I was going. I just drove. Uh, and before I actually stopped, I was in Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh. And I turned around and went back. <laughs> All the same day. Just... Because I, I don't know why. I was just, I, I wasn't running away, and I wasn't leaving. I had no intentions of not showing up the oh, next that's, day. I was just 
clearing my head. I, yeah. and I just drove, and, and that's a long way. That's a long way. All you way had from, a lot of I had to clear. A lot, a lot of time to think. Yeah, <laughs> my head was pretty thick. I guess I couldn't get things through there very well. Maybe. I don't know. But, <laughs> uh, but I got back home late that evening, and it was wow. inducted the next day. Uh, so, uh, but at that point, I was drafted. I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky for a few days before my initial introduction. Uh, and I can remember getting off the bus. They fly you down there. Uh, the bus picks you up, and they take you in there, and, and you're on the, all these civilian guys. We're all in there, and we all got our stuff, you know. And he, uh, they, they run to all the bus, and all the Smokey the Bear hats, we call them, the drill sergeants, is there waiting Smokey for you. Smokey the Bear And they had these Smokey the Bear hats on. That's what they, we call them, Smokey the Bear. <laughs> uh, and and they, uh, they come off the bus, and they were yelling right before you ever got your foot on the ground. Uh, and uh, and they would just run you over there and they say, "Hey, you with the hair, you with this." And they're like, "Can I get you?" Before you could even get off the bus, they had you doing push-ups, uh, and it was just like surreal. You know, it was like, "What? What did I do? What did I do? I didn't do anything. What, what are you making me? What are you mad at me for?" Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I also learned that much later that <laughs> that wasn't personal. Yeah. You know, that wasn't nothing personal here, guys. They were already trying to save your life. Already right trying there, to save yeah. my life that moment. I wasn't even there yet. <laughs> so, uh, but they, um, uh, a couple days later, you know, I mean, they take you through, they march you everywhere, they're, they're hollering and yelling at you and making you do push-ups, and then they run over and give you your uniforms, and they take all your civilian clothes, and they say, now put them all in this box. They give you a box, put all your stuff in the box, and make you mail it home. That, that made it final. You were no longer wearing civilian clothes. You are in the Army. You're mine. Okay. <laughs> and the civilian clothes show back okay. up home. Okay. And they're like, oh, no, this is all stuff yeah. my little baby boy. Look at this box of clothes. That's it. <laughs> That's also final for your parents. That was final. Yeah. That was it. He was gone. Um, and so uh, then I got the haircut. And they always told me, you know, uh, the regulations say that you can have one inch left on top. Got off of your one inch left on top. Yeah. Some of the guys went in there and got their hair cut with one inch left on top. I sat in the chair and told the barber, I said, I want it so that it just will pass. Meaning I wanted the one inch. He shaved me balder than an onion. I think the barber knew something that I did not yet know, that the bald onion was what just would pass. Anybody that came out with that one inch still on top? Yeah. Said, hey, you with the hair. Come over here and do this. Or, hey, uh, you with the hair. Okay. The guy, and they, they sooner or later went back and got it all shaved Man, off. Man, you had people on your side you no, didn't even know. I didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> the barber saved me. <laughs> barber was on your side, uh, said you but, success. But that was kind of the beginning, and it just kind of went like, and I was there for about four days in processing, and they sent me to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, for because, as I mentioned, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was drafted as a conscientious objector. Right. Bearing arms, right. and so I went to a conscientious objector basic training at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, where I also then got my medic training right after that. Okay, okay, so that was your job. That was I was a combat medic when okay. I was first in the service. Wow. Yep. Um, and so when I graduated from uh, medic training, the medic school. Uh, well, first of all, let me back up. When we went through medic school, we after you were there a certain length of time, you could get passes. And so I, there were, in our company of 600 trainees, there were three apostolics that were there. Wow. And I found the other two, and there were three of them. And we would go to Brother Jimmy DeReese's church in San Antonio, Texas, and they would pick us up in a van, and we'd go to church when we could get a pass. We'd go to church on Sunday. Uh, they would come. The band came every Sunday. If we were there, they took us. If we weren't, they knew something had happened, and we couldn't go, and so then they left. Uh, but the band was there every Sunday. During the uh, after hours, when the lights out, you know, a lot of times, then the guys, 
uh, would get in the stairwell and would sing uh, hymns. Uh, and it was a beautiful three-part harmony. Mm-hmm. It's a cappella. And I can remember some of it to this day. Just beautiful a cappella harmony with all these guys yeah. singing gospel songs in the stairway of the barracks. Wow. And uh, during that time, there were six other young men praying at their bedsides. That us three apostolics prayed through the Holy Ghost oh, wow. during training. We took them to Brother Jimmy DeReese's church, and they were baptized in Jesus' name wow. while we were still in training. Uh, when it came time after we graduated from medic school that we were getting orders to go wherever we were going, yeah. uh, up till that time, they had been sending, they graduated every two weeks, they were sending 600 medics every two weeks to Vietnam because medics were getting picked off right and left. Yeah. Well, they still had billets they needed to fill everywhere else in the world where they had troops. And so for my graduating class, they had 1%. Only six of us were going to Vietnam. Uh, I had a guy try to volunteer to take my place. They wouldn't let him. And, 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 I, and to, I didn't know I said, what's going on here. Why do I have to go when people volunteer? God had a plan. I still didn't know what it was. But, but I found out later, uh, much later, the plan. But of the six that went with me and five of the young men that had gotten the Holy Ghost in Basin, those five young men died in Vietnam. Again, just in time, God. Just in time. He got them just in time, and then they died. And so I, I look back on all those things now, and I think, wow. I was in the middle of some of the best stuff that ever happened in my life in the military. <laughs> and it brings tears until the day. That's unbelievable. Yeah. So at any rate, then uh, after that, then the guys dispersed went their way, uh, and I was put on orders for Vietnam. So you're out to Vietnam. Where where was where did you uh, where they ship you out to in Vietnam? Uh, actually, at that time we were going by plane. Uh-huh. Uh, it was kind of interesting in that they flew us over on passenger liners, passenger planes. Flew into the combat zone at Tonsonut Air Base in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Um, and so, and I found out as well uh, when I was coming home from Vietnam much later that um, the stewardesses and the pilots volunteered for these flights into Vietnam. To take soldiers in, bring soldiers out. They volunteered, and there was a waiting list to get to go do it. That was these. This was an American airline. American, just American airlines. Uh, American uh, TWA. All these different airlines would would do it, and they would fly soldiers in and fly soldiers home. And their pilots and airline stewards volunteered for the duty because they felt as though that was their contribution. That that's something they could do for the guys. Uh, and like I said, there was a waiting list, a long waiting list wow. that they had to take turns rotating through the privilege of, of flying a passenger jet into Vietnam. You know, I I wanted to get into this later, but I guess I'll touch on it just a little bit now. That surprises me because my generation, we look at films and television, how Vietnam is portrayed. Mm-hmm. It's We always see as a very leftist view of it, a very anti, you know, it was very anti-war. So to hear about these American businesses, maybe some of them were not for the war, but they still put that aside and right. assisted in the effort. Right. And, and this went on through the end of the war, uh, even though 
by that time, a lot of people, and I won't say it was even the majority, I don't think it was, yeah. uh, that had turned against the war, protested, uh, and did all the kinds of stuff they did, and even attacked veterans when they got home. Yeah. Uh, that was, I, I do not, and I refuse to believe that that was a majority of the population. I think that was a very vocal minority, much like we hear today, a vocal minority yeah. uh, gets all the press, but uh, yeah. they're the ones that, uh, but, but uh, that, I think that was the, the thing. Um, and companies, I don't know about the airlines, I, I don't know if the military paid them, I don't know any of that, but what I do know is their employees stood in line. Ready to give their right. time. Right. Wow. Show a little kindness before they exactly. got off the plane. Exactly. Stepped into hell. Uh-huh. Um, yep. So literally, you step out into war. Yep. What's your, can you even recall what your first thought is when you step foot on the country of Vietnam? Yeah, I can tell you. My first thought was, because when I got there, it was raining. <laughs> and um, and I stepped out the plane, because they, they didn't have the fancy terminals you got now. You walked down the steps and walked across the tarmac over to a building. Uh, and I remember walking through the rain, carrying my bag, uh, thinking to myself, wow, the rain's the same here as it is back in the States. I mean, mind you, I'm 19 years old. <laughs> okay, I haven't been doing... You've only had 19 years I've of not, rain. I'm yeah. not, I'm not, I'm not... I haven't done a lot of this kind of going to different country stuff yet, you know. Uh-huh. So, uh, and, and then it's I the thought, same rain but, that, here. but that's the thought. It hit me. I thought I had my hand out and I went. Out. I thought, wow, the rain's the same here. And I thought, well, you big dummy. Of course it would be the same. God here, they is there. Why wouldn't it be the same? <laughs> but for that split moment, that was the first thing, first thing that hit my mind. Wow, the rain's the same. Oh, <laughs> and well. I found out a lot more about that same rain being the same later. But as time went on, oh, I'm sure uh, because they had they had some serious monsoon seasons there. <laughs> When did you, uh, how long was it till you saw your first bout of combat? In three days. Wow. Three days. Uh, we got off of the, the, the planes, and they put us on buses and took us to uh, the 90th Replacement Battalion, they called it, and that was at Long Bend, which was about 10 miles from the air base where, outside of Saigon, and it was about 20 miles outside of Saigon. It was called Long Bend. At that time, it was the largest American military base in the country, uh, in the Vietnam. And so... Uh, we were there, and we were waiting to be picked up and sent off to other units. Uh, the very next day, uh, the general comes through looking for medics, and he saw us medics lined up there, the six apostolics and five brand-new apostolics yeah. all lined up there. Yeah. And he just said, you, 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 and you, and you, follow me. And off we went, and we got with different units, and we flew out to our uh, by helicopter out to our bases. And so we were at our combat base day two. Uh, day three, I was on a patrol and treated my first casualty. Treated your first casualty. So, what was that like? Uh, did the training just click? The tra- were you ready uh, to go? And, and actually, it turned out that the training did just kind of click in, and it's amazing how that happens. And when you hear people talk about it even today, uh, members of our church here who will say, well, it's just the training. The training that I got just clicked in, and I knew exactly what to do, whether it's CPR, whether it's uh, treating someone who's been injured, whether it's someone fall down a ladder, or whatever, whatever it is. Repeatedly, people will say, well, it was my training. My training just clicked in, and I knew what to do. And it was a very similar thing there. Um, we were on patrol, and the guy stepped on a mine. Uh, he ended up uh, a quadruple amputee. Uh, he had one leg blown off below the knee, one above the knee. The, and his arms were one blown off just below the shoulder, and the other one just below the elbow. And uh, to make it even better, his intestines were hanging out of it, laying on the ground. 
Uh, and so this is what I came up to. And this I'm was like, your first guy? My first casualty. So the very first thing I did in treating my first casualty when I knelt down beside him was lean across him and throw up on the ground on the other side. Because of what I had seen, I literally, uh, I was blown away. But then, yeah. but after that, then it just kind of all clicked. I treated the most serious things first. Uh, the amputations were somewhat cauterized by the explosion. Yeah. So I didn't have to deal with them immediately. I dealt with the intestine issue and watered it down, kept it moist, and kept, you know, carbided it and tied it around his back. So I didn't put them back in, but I let them, held them from falling out any further. And then I patched up the uh, stumps and uh, we medevaced him out. And... As a story of that is um, probably seven, eight years later. I'm, of course, back home by now. <clears throat> uh, still in the service, but still back home. And I'm sitting morning at the breakfast table. I get a phone call. <coughs> and uh, then uh, he said, hey, Doc, how you doing? I said, uh, well, yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you? And he said, you don't know who this is, do you? And I said, no, no, I sure don't. He said, this is little Billy. Little Billy? Little Billy. <laughs> that was his nickname. We called him Little Billy. I mean, that was their nickname for him. I hadn't had a chance to really. Little Little Billy. He said, I've been looking for you for years. He said, I'm your first casualty in Vietnam. And he said, you'll never guess where I'm at. And I said, oh, my goodness. I, you, I, he said, I said, I would have sworn you probably wouldn't have made it. Yeah. And he said, yeah, I wouldn't have thought I did either. Your he guts said, were out. But, but he said, I did. He says, and right now I'm in California. And I'm at the top of the mountain getting ready to snow ski down the mountain. He said, I've got all artificial limbs. And he said, and I'm, I'm busy. I'm active. He said, and I'm going to go. I've been skiing and I'm skiing down this mountain. He said, and I finally got word by phone call just as I got up here that they found you and gave me your phone number. And I wanted to call you before I went down to tell you what I was going to do and what you did for me. And I'm like. That blew me away. It blew me away. I cried for probably a half hour after that, <laughs> after that phone call. Because we're we're going like, to have to pause this right here because I'm going to cry for a half an hour. <laughs> like I couldn't believe this guy <laughs> was still alive, let alone get ready to ski down a wow. mountain. Wow. Which at that time of my life, I hadn't even skied down a mountain yet. Yeah. <laughs> I've skied. He's That guy's still probably way better than me. <laughs> but uh, I'm better. I've skied since then, but you know... Mm. Uh, oh, probably, wow. But, I, but that, so that, that was my first casualty. That's your first casualty. That was my first. And there were many more to follow. I'm sure. When, okay, so let me ask, you come away from that, they probably they probably pick you up and fly you out, right? From, from. Uh, not me, I got to stay there with the You troops. had to stay there. I stayed there on the ground and finished the mission. They flew him out. Okay, so how long did that mission last, the, the first uh, one? Two days. Two days. For two days. You're in the jungle. Uh-huh. What's that like? Um, it's. Uh, I know that's a very vague question. It, it, it was, well, it was um, very hot, uh, muggy, sweaty, uh, um, it was unbelievably hot and humid there, especially in the jungle, uh, because the jungle held all the moisture in, and uh, and so you, it was just humid. I mean, you walk in there and, and in your uniform, and but then just a minute or two, you're you're soaking wet. Um, so uh, we were we were just going through, and we were very quiet. We set up a night shift ambush. Uh, nobody came, so we gave that up. So we gave a party, and nobody came. That was kind of <laughs> uh, that was disappointing. It's but and it, <laughs> I was looking for the guys that blew up my buddy the day before. You know, I'm gonna right. get you guys for that. But no, they didn't come. So that was kind of the mission of it. We did. We had no further contact in that 
that I recall in that first. And then they took you out. And then we they, we went through. Uh, we did our night ambush. Then we went to. It was kind of like a search and destroy. What they called a search and destroy mission, uh-huh. where you're searching for the enemy. You destroy if you can, or pinpoint where they are, so that air assets or somebody else yeah. can destroy. They can napalm. Whatever. Yeah, napalm that kind of thing. Uh, and then we would go to a designated point, which is our extraction point, and they come back and fly us out. Did you witness a napalm strike? Yes, yourself? I have. I have seen them. I have seen them up close and personal, where we had to call them in almost on our, what they call calling in on my pod, or calling it in on, calling fire in on top of me, and then I was just getting a hole and cover up and try to survive the whole thing because we were being overrun. I've experienced that. Uh, and during that, they put napalm all around the perimeter of our base, and it was, napalm was falling probably within 30, 40 yards of where I was, my location. My God. Yep. Uh, so I have experienced that, yes. How long, okay, so at this point, your first mission, you're still a conscientious, conscientious objector. Mm-hmm. How long did it take for that to flip? Well, I, it was, I'd been there, uh, after we got done with this mission, we went back, they flew us out, and we were back at base camp, we were there for a couple, three days before we had another mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was about a month, about a month out, we're in, uh, on, on a patrol, and this time we are ambushed uh, by a force much larger than ours. Uh, but to our advantage, they were apparently low on ammunition. The enemy soldiers were, because they actually took all the ammo and gave it to half of their men, who shot at us. Uh-huh. And then, as they were running low, then the other half, who had fixed bayonet, charged us with their to take, finish us off. And they were totally around us, 360 degree. We we're totally surrounded. Um, and so I'm, you know, and we're a platoon size. There's probably 30 of us guys there. And um, so I could hear the shooting going on around, and one of the guys was wounded in front of me, so I'm treating him. And I look up and see uh, a Viet Cong soldier charging toward me with his fixed bayonet. And I figure, well, one of the other guys will take care of him. I don't have to worry about him. You know, and I'm treating the, the wound on this soldier, kneeling down beside him. And I keep looking, and he's still coming, still coming, still coming. And uh, nobody took him out. I think I guess they figured out later they were all too uh, busy on the, with their own problem. Okay, yeah. And so as he came close, I just back leaned back a little bit and so he would come in front of me instead of through my side and as he went across the front of me here I grabbed his weapon uh, and slung him around against the tree that I was near yeah uh, the weapon came out of his hand and I ran him through with his own bayonet uh, and killed him that was my first real hand to hand that was the I'd been there about a month and that messed me up I I had been and I don't know that it had been drilled into me this way, but I have believed for years now that thou shalt not kill. Right. I had just killed. Yeah. And it's like, now what? You know, everything I did, everything I held true to me, everything I believed up to this point is gone. I just broke all of my own rules. Um, and, I, and I didn't quite know what to do. Um, I left it alone for a while, left him, <laughs> left him pinned to his tree with his own weapon as we were evacuated out eventually. And, and I'm back at base camp again. We, usually there was a few days. And we didn't have a chaplain at our base camp. So I had nobody to talk to about this. Right. Um, and so eventually they had what they call traveling chaplains who would go by helicopter. And they would go around to the different bases because there was a shortage of chaplains in the country. There. Uh, so this chaplain came through, and I thought, i got to talk to this guy. Well, it turns out he was a Jewish rabbi. And he said, I, 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 and at that point, I, I don't care. I, I, I got to talk to somebody. I yeah. don't care. Because any of the soldiers I was with wasn't going to understand no. what I was going through because they were ready to kill. Yeah. And, and I was ready to heal. I wouldn't, 
we had two different But I purposes. have to ask, you, you went into this incredibly bloody war with the just – you were not going to take any life. Exactly. In fact, I had no weapons training. <sighs> I had no weapons training through basic at all because I was a conscientious objector to bearing arms. So they didn't train me how to bear arms. And so I'm in Vietnam and had no weapons training at all, only medic training. And so I didn't carry a weapon. I didn't have a 45. I didn't have a 16 rifle. I had nothing. I had, a, I had a knife that I used to cut bandages with, and that's about it. That's all I had. And so... When I did this with this guy's own weapon, it, it just, it, it killed me. You know, I, I was devastated. And I really didn't know how to proceed. And so I talked to this Jewish rabbi chaplain. And I told him my problem. And he said, I mean, he said, I totally understand, young man. I, I understand your problem. He said, but there's something you don't know. He said, the King James Version of the Bible, I showed him my Bible. I showed him where it said, don't kill. I, this is what I believe. He said, I, I understand that. The King James Version of the Bible is an excellent transcription. He said, probably the best one out there. He said, that's a great Bible. He said, but not all the words translate as they were intended. He said, in the Hebrew, when it, that phrase is not thou shalt not murder, but thou, not thou shalt not kill, but thou shalt not murder. Right. He said, you didn't murder anybody. No. It was self-defense for you. Yeah. He said, so it wasn't murder. He said, you were defending yourself or defending your friends, defending your country, defending your family. He said, that's totally different. He said, you didn't murder anyone. And at that moment, a weight lifted off of me. And uh, I, to this day, believe that when I needed a chaplain, God sent me a rabbi. <laughs> God sent a rabbi. He knows what we need yeah. when we need it. That's and he right. sent me a rabbi. Uh, a Presbyterian or an apostolic preacher even or somebody probably would not have understood at that time or known how that translation worked. He did because he understood understood the language. Wow. And so God sent me a rabbi. So you And at that point on, then I was fine. Uh, and the rabbi told me he said uh, you probably should have some of the guys show you how to use Okay, a I was about to say, like, <laughs> so, so. So they did. And so the, the guys got with me, and they, and they said, well, Doc, he says, you're ready for a gun now? I said, yeah, I think so. So they showed uh. me, they showed me how, to, <laughs> how to fire a forty-five pistol. They showed me uh, how to clean it, how to arm, how to do the whole thing. So then I came, and before I was done, I was an expert marksmanship with a, with a forty-five. Wow. On the pistol ranges, I would get 50 out of 50 later wow. on my military. Good for you. Yeah. So I, that was a that was a. a you literally point. flipped it all around. And flipped it right there. With but the you Jewish were ready. Rabbi. But you were ready to defend yourself. Yeah, that's what your mindset was. Yeah, you were gonna. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think even at that, I think it was just instincts. I I, I think I firmly believed I would never get in that position. You were you were God determined. Would shield, yeah. God would keep me from ever getting to the point where I had to kill anybody. He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> and so, so when I did this, it was just my own actions. You know, it wasn't anything. I, I think it's a personal thing. You know, everybody probably has this. You're going to defend yourself right. to the best you can. Uh, you know, and all the other training you've got back here doesn't supersede what God put inside us right. of self-defense. Right. And so that's what happened. It clicked in. Uh, and then it took a rabbi to explain to me my logic uh, was wrong. Right. And so that... Uh, that was a turning point. Wow. Did my, you, so your next trip out, you had a completely different mindset. Completely different mindset. I had my 45, and I used it. And you're, oh, you, you used it. <laughs> I used it. 
<laughs> so you had you had it on your uh, you had it on your person uh-huh. while you're treating somebody. Uh-huh. You you were ready for. I was uh, ready. Anybody gets messing with me and my, and my patient here, you're yeah. mine. Okay. And okay. I got you. And I got you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Did you have any? Um, I remember you had vaguely mentioned because we were talking about uh, kind of a sensitive subject about uh, somebody was in the news fairly recently about uh, abusing children. And we had got to talking about it. And uh, you'd say, well, I know exactly how to solve that problem. (laughs) And of course, I couldn't wait to hear, but uh, it referred back to your Vietnam experience again, uh, how to handle somebody or how to punish somebody properly. Mm -hmm. Now, You said it should be public. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who's harming children, and it's been proven upon a shadow of a doubt, it should be done publicly. Mm-hmm. And then you referenced one of your own men who maybe he, all he was was in the wrong place at the wrong time, got captured. Mm-hmm. So he, um, we had been uh, ambushed, and uh, we, again, which happened a lot, <laughs> seeming as we did, but... Uh, and some of the, some of us got, were separated. Some of the unit was separated. Um, and and one of the soldiers. I mean, the night fell, and and so we we set a perimeter. We couldn't. We weren't going to have any relief coming until the next morning. So we had our perimeter set, and um, uh, we could hear one of the missing guys uh, screaming uh, out there. Uh, but we knew that we absolutely could not leave the perimeter to go get him. Okay, so they they wanted you to come after they him. They wanted us to come after him. They were set up ready for us to come rescue to him. To come rescue him. And then they would have gotten the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, but that is why they were making it such a uh, a slow torture for him. And uh, we and finally before dawn he quit screaming and we did leave and we went in the direction where he was. But the enemy had all along fled. Uh, but we found him uh, tied up to a post. Uh, he had been skinned alive. Uh, where they actually just cut the skin off, you know, like you were skinning a a deer. Yeah. Um, and he had been skinned alive, and uh, and they had cut off and his organ stuck in his mouth. I don't. I can't. I, yeah. I didn't go yeah, yeah, that, yeah, but, yeah. But that was the torture, and so, uh, but there were. There was a time when uh, we were uh, had been called to a neighboring village near to our base that, that had been pacified, uh, and we had an orphanage there because a lot of the men were gone in the service uh, and missing. Nobody knew where they were. They were in the South Vietnamese Army, and, and they were just gone. Uh, there were a lot of South Vietnamese casualties that were never found, uh, and the, the wives and the children never knew what happened to daddy. Wow. Uh, and so these villages we went into to try to pacify them, you know, and keep them on our side, uh, and had set up orphanages with different ones of the the females who would run the orphanage for us. Um, and so we were called to this one village because the Viet Cong had attacked the village, and um, we we uh, found that they had killed some of the children. Um, they had taken. By the time we got there, they were gone. The guys were gone. The Viet Cong had the killed Viet some? The Viet Cong killed them. 
uh, killed some of the children that had been in our orphanage. Uh, they killed uh, some of the women. They took the chief, tied him to a post, uh, and then cut his intestines out and let him hang on the ground. And the pigs were rooting in his intestines. And the chief's wife and children were made to watch as this was done. We arrived after they had just left and found all of this. Uh, it was a very public uh, demonstration by the communist soldiers uh, to, in an intimidation, the Americans can't protect you. Uh, that was the message. And so we immediately took off. And this was near the Cambodian border. We were not more than a couple, three miles from the border. Uh, it was in the Ladrang Valley area where uh, in 1966 the first calf had been there before and had, had this huge battle where the book and movie had written, We Were Soldiers Once, but yeah. Not. Yeah. Uh, with Colonel uh, Moore. Yes. When it, uh, and it was in that same area wow. where we were, just a little bit, a little bit further west, closer to the Cambodian border. Uh, and so, what these guys would do, we weren't supposed to be in Cambodia. We were just in Vietnam. American soldiers weren't in Cambodia. Right. That night, we were in Cambodia because we we immediately we set out after them, and there was no. Magic mark on the ground going to stop us from getting. We found them. We found them, and uh, and it turned that some of of uh, the children not only had the children been killed, some little girls had been raped by these enemy soldiers. And to me, that's the that's the gravest sin. That that's you don't you don't do that. To Innocent to little children. You, you can't do that. They already sense. destroyed their youth. Well, hard enough being in a in a war zone. Yeah. But then to do this, just to me, that was, that, let me shoot them. That was my mindset at the time. Let me shoot them. I want to do it. Uh, so we did find we did find them, and they were sitting around a little campfire thing on the other side of the border, about probably a half mile inside the border. Uh, we surrounded them and um, fired a few shots into the air at first. And then they wanted to, uh, then they decided they thought, well, we'll just surrender. And they, the chuhoi, which was the word for I give up or surrender, uh, and we took no prisoners. We took no prisoners that night. Wow. We did. Uh, and I probably shouldn't admit that, but we absolutely, uh, I think the statute of limitations is long gone, so yeah. we absolutely took no prisoners uh, that night. We walked into them, and they're standing there, and we just, it, it was so horrific what they had done in the village. We just couldn't. Your sense of justice took over. Yeah, yeah and, and they were just, we just turned Wow. And left them later for the book, for the animals. And so we, uh, so as far as, I, I, I just don't have much uh, sympathy at all for someone who harms a child. Yeah. I, I just, Obviously, I don't. you protected your own siblings right. from somebody who was trying I to did. harm them. You took justice out on uh, people from another country who was harming children. Right. That's something that's very close to you. Yeah. So when, once a week, we would go into this little village, and I, as the medic, went in to the orphanage and, and made certain that they had medical supplies, made certain they had enough food, made sure they had everything they needed. So these were my kids. These were my kids. And they had messed with my kids. And they were going to pay. <laughs> and that, that's, that's just the way I look. And it's kind of interesting, uh, the mindset you get into. Once you've been in combat for a little while, you're not the civilized man that you were. No, your mind, you have to change. Yeah, right? your mind changes because now you have to survive. And you go away from giving someone the benefit of a doubt, 
you move all the way over here to the other side where you say, no, you I'm not going to give you the benefit. You now. almost can't afford You can't to. afford to do that because I will now die. And I'm not going to sacrifice my life so you can do. And so, so it's a totally different mindset, which, which to me, I, under, I totally get it. Yeah. I get it. But it creates problems in today's military. Yeah. In that, in Afghanistan, in Iraq. Now, we've got soldiers that have been deployed 10, 12 times. They go in combat, and then they come out and come home. They go back to combat, they come back home. You can't take your mind back and forth that way very many times before something snaps inside. Uh, that's why you've got a high rate of divorce in the military. In the military. You've got high rate of suicide in combat veterans nowadays. It's all because of this mindset that our civilian-led uh, military has gotten into. Where Rather than, like we did in World War II, where you go in, you tear you know, the, the idea of the military is to kill people and break things. Yeah. So go in there, do all you got to do, fix the issue, and go home. Nation building is left to them. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't I don't concur with the way they're doing it nowadays, uh, where you've got a six-month deployment or a one-year deployment, and then you come back home, but then you get deployed again. The mind going back and forth like that is hard. It's a hard career. That's a hard thing, because I did that. I mean, I went from the nice guy, the kid back here who I'll thou shot and not kill, yeah. to the guy over here that says, give me a gun and let me shoot these guys. Yeah. I want to kill them myself. Yeah. That total shift, um, but even to this day, I cannot stand a child molester. I, I, if it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, they, no, you know, let God have mercy on your soul because I won't. Yeah, I, I'm, that's just me. Bill, I have to ask: after you all went out for justice to avenge that that village, after you came back, was there a feeling of relief? Was there a feeling of we? What was, what was the emotion there? The emotion actually, because there we had more than one of these villages. The emotion was, this is a new tactic. When will it happen again? It wasn't so much of uh, a feeling of relief. Like you got it. it was, yeah, we but got now it. you were worried. But now you're worried about when's the next one, and where will it come from? Uh, and so it was almost as though this was a new. You had no time. You had no time to. You there, had no time, no time to there, think. There, there's no time to uh, delve into yourself and try to sort out your inner being, because your inner being is now totally transposed. There's no time for that in war. In, into a killing machine. Wow. Basically, playing clearly, and, and 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 it's not that. And understand, not everybody will have that emotion, because not everybody who went to Vietnam was in combat. Yeah. There are those who were in the rear areas that dealt with supply and what have you. Now they have their own experiences yeah. and having to defend the perimeter perhaps on the base they're at. Right. But it wasn't the in-depth nose-to-nose, hand-to-hand combat that the infantry soldier experienced or the armor soldiers. And there are others in our church that have got the same experiences right. and they would tell you to a man probably the exact same thing. Uh, it's different. It changes you completely. Yeah. It changes you. And so I didn't have time for remorse. I didn't have time to worry about those guys. I now was back in this village and had to deal with my kids. The ones that survived. The ones that survived. I had to deal with my kids, some that had been traumatized. Little girls had been traumatized. And I needed to assure them somehow that it was going to be okay. And, and I don't know that I ever got through to them. That they're you had to do that. I was doing that. You I was, had to do that. I was their go-to. But it was almost... Bill, if I have, you know, in retrospect, you almost have to think that 
you had to be the one to do that because it was almost part of your, like what? saving yourself. If I could I, save these kids, yeah. if I could help these kids, then maybe yeah. I can help myself in this situation yeah. here. I can hold a bit of my own sanity, my own, my sanity. own humanity maybe, here. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and so that's like that. so it makes. <clears throat> I hope it opens up, and you know, I, I am. I would never, ever, uh, judge anyone who's involved in any open combat like that. But it you you have to look at it with a little more empathy mm-hmm. and, and sympathy when it comes to the fact of they were your children. Yeah, their dad was gone. They had no dad, uh, and the women that were there. Uh, that were taking care of them was not their mothers. Uh, they and were alone. somebody came in yeah. and harmed them. Yeah. And I had been the one going in every week, and they always ran to me. You know, and I would give them candy, and I would give them things. You know, I'd give them stuff out of my own food packs uh, and made certain that they had medical supplies. Uh, and I would check them out and see, you know, if you got, if you got you know, anything wrong with your eyes, if you got, like, you're beginning to develop some kind of a red eye or something. I treated them, and, and they looked to me as a father figure. Right. Uh, and so these were my kids. These were my kids. And, uh, and when those guys came in, then after we left all that over there and I came back to them, I was doing what I could to reassure them. And I told them, I said, those guys will never come back here. They're gone. And I reemphasized, those guys are gone. They will never come back here to harm you. Yeah. I couldn't tell them that others wouldn't. Yeah. And that was what set my mind. Okay. After that, were there any? I mean, I almost, yeah, I almost it, I hate to dive deeper into it, but I while I have you here, that's okay. That's um, okay. Were there any other close calls for yourself? There were. Oh, uh, there, there were a number of them. Uh, I was wounded uh, three times. Wow! In, in combat, so you um, did, sometimes uh, the bayonet didn't just uh, you didn't catch it in no, time. Some, some, sometimes I got my own little. Uh, they weren't uh, necessarily serious wounds. One of them, uh, there was an opportunity where I, uh, our base was coming under rocket attack at night, which was a frequent tactic. Um, you had to beware to make certain that the rocket attack coming into the base wasn't a precursor to a charge at your, at your perimeter. So the, so the bunker line always perked up when rockets started coming in. Uh, but they would target certain things, would led us, which at times led us to wonder uh, where they got their intelligence. How did they know the ammunition bunker was there? And, so we, and we, at times we, we find out, but other, most of the time we never knew how they knew what to target. Uh, but there was a time when the guy on the other side of the base had been wounded I was over here, he was over there. So I'm zigzagged, low running over there during the rocket fire to try to get to him to treat whatever wound he had. Yeah. Uh, there was, um, and I could hear a rocket coming in. You could hear it, it had some whistle. You know, or like a whistle. It was coming down. I could hear it coming, and I thought, this is going to land close, but I didn't know where. And there was nowhere for me to die, so I just kept going, and it landed right over there, about three feet away from me. Uh, but it apparently, these things, um, a rocket or an artillery round, or either, any of those, even our own, if you fire them at too low a trajectory, it doesn't you get a chance to arm. Uh-huh. And so when it hits the ground, it skips. Uh, and so it hits the ground, and then it skip up and kind of like skipping a rock on a lake. Yeah. It would do that kind of a thing. Well, that's what this one did. 
uh, it was fired a too low trajectory, and like I said, it landed about three feet away. It skipped and hit my right leg, right at the knee. Yeah. Um, and so it it uh, sent me flying through the air. It didn't explode. Thank goodness. If it had been dry trajectory, it would have killed me right there. But the, uh, Wait. So the missile hit you directly in the The, the missile hit the ground. Oh, okay. But had it hit the ground and blown up three feet away, it would have killed me. Yeah. Uh, but as it did, it hit the ground and skipped. And when as it, it skipped, it and skipped you. up, it hit me in my right knee. Oh. And sent me flying through oh, the air. Oh. And I landed way over yonder and landed. You are one lucky boy. I've been, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you, God was with me. And all of this time I'm thinking, why am I here? And I'm picking up learning all these things that God's wow. doing. And it didn't register at the time. But, uh, but then when I landed, after flipping through the air several times, my left knee hit a rock. <laughs> and so both of my legs are kind of like ouchy. Uh, and so I low crawl the rest of the way over to where the wounded guy was. Uh, it did not break the skin on my right leg. when it, That rock, when it hit me, it did not break the skin. But what it did do was dislocated my knee about a half inch or so uh, where the top half of my leg was a half inch further to the inside than the bottom half. So it took my knee and just twisted it to the right. And I stayed in the military. It never was treated. I never had a problem with that. I ran on the PT test two miles. Is this this? Okay, so. As you know, I did have, I had the surgery just a few years ago. That's what I was about to say. I remember. Yeah. I remember you had to go in for that surgery. It finally gave out about, uh, I guess, about three years ago now where I had to have my right knee replaced. Tell tell them what the doc, yeah. When the surgeon goes in and he uh, takes, opens me up, the, the, Bones fell out on the table. They were just, oh. It was just shattered in there. Oh, and it had man. been hurting so bad, and I had no idea. Uh, but I went in, and, and uh, so when he put in the new knee, and he kept all the pieces of the bone fragments that had come out. Because it was just and laying in pieces there. When he opened it up, they just fell out on the table. And I asked him if I could have them, and he said no. It was going to be part of his traveling training show. <laughs> he never <laughs> gave them back to me. I asked him for royalties. I never got any. No, but, no you probably won't. <laughs> but, sorry. Uh, but that was one of the stories. When he would go around the country and lecture, um, he uh, he brought that case out all the time. Wow! And, I didn't, and he took his bottle with him of the bone fragments <laughs> that he had with him. Uh, but then uh, I'm in the hospital the next day, and they asked me what my pain level is, um, and I kept telling them uh, between one and ten. I said, "Oh, one, maybe." I, I, I wouldn't. I felt no pain in that knee after they put the artificial knee in there, uh, and they said, "Really? I want you see, You sure you don't?" He said, "You realize your pain med comes, you get." Based on the number you give me. And I said, okay, uh, well, what do you want? Uh, three, four. I'll give you four. How's that? Uh, and they sent me with a home with oxycodone stuff, which I never took. I, never, I didn't want to get hooked to that really? stuff. Really? I never took it. I never had any pain in that right knee. And when I went back to the surgeon afterwards, he said, oh, no. You were in pain. You just didn't. It was nothing compared to what you were in before with your bone ah, fragments. He right. said, so it was so much better. He said, that you're in pain. You just don't know it. And I said, oh, well, that's fine then. Okay. But I can remember that I really struggled for a few years on that right knee. In fact, that's what ended my military career, was the fact that I could not run That's time. what ended? That's what ended it. Because you couldn't run. I couldn't really? run anymore to meet time. Uh, they told me, they said, now, Colonel, if you want, you know, you can do the two-mile walk, which I could do that yeah. to time because they had more time for that. Yeah. And I just said, no, no, if I can't run and lead the troops, then I need to leave it to a younger guy with better condition. No, I'm out. So I just retired. But that, that ended it, the pain in my knee, because I could not pass the physical fitness test. Okay, so before we get to retirement here, um, let's let's go back to Nam. Uh, what, so at this, at this point where you get injured, 
the rocket hits your knee. About what year is this? That is uh, probably in late February, early March of 71. Okay, so how, wait, I'm trying to get my timeline together. This is why it's good to have my I, notes. Or, I, well, no, it couldn't have been that time. It would, had to have been in the, uh, because I was still in basic at that time. Uh, I would have been, You're I still in basic. In February, I would have been in basic. Uh, but it would have been more August. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, I was still 19. Uh, I had not yet turned 20. And you had more, there was more to go, there, more yeah. to get through. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. So the, so this the, is insane. <laughs> just, um, I, I, it was an incredible uh, point you, in my life. I, I can remember uh, an incident where, and the one that probably rings closest to me and rings truer to me of God's deliverance is a time when we were uh, going out. It was an entire company sweep of the base. And what they would do in those cases, they would take the company of infantry and they would put one platoon, one click away, or one kilometer, a thousand meters away from the base, and they would do a complete 360-degree scan. And then the second platoon would go another kilometer out, and the third platoon would go still another kilometer. So the farthest one out was three kilometers away from the base, 3,000 meters. Uh, I was in the third one out, and um, we came under attack uh, while we, we did, and there was troops in the middle. So there, there had there had been preparation before we did this company sweep for a massive attack on the base that night. We interrupted it with our company sweep, uh, but it was a much much larger force than what our company was. Uh, the uh, soldiers separate were in between each of those groups. So the 1,000 meter out, there were enemy soldiers between them and the 2,000 meter out. There were enemy soldiers between the 2,000 meter and the 3,000 meter. So they were everywhere through there. Uh, and we were out and we were, and we were ambushed um, by, uh, and like in our platoon at that time, uh, we had already taken casualties uh, earlier. We were, um, I think there were maybe 28 of us. And there's usually 35, 36 in a, in a platoon. Uh, so we were, there were about 28, maybe a few less than that, in our platoon on our sweep. Uh, we came under attack, and it was uh, it was just it was the most gunfire I'd ever heard. Uh, we were outnumbered uh, probably 10 to 1. Wow. And, um, and they, they overtook us. Uh, they they uh, killed everybody. I was treating my last wounded sword. I could hear the... I could hear all the fire, but I was just really inundated. I didn't have time to start shooting at enemy soldiers because I was treating all of our wounded. And I, as wounded soldier I was treating, he died in front of me. And at that moment, I heard that there was no gunfire. That the gunfire had ceased. And, I, and so I looked up, and everybody, all of our guys are, are down. And uh, the uh, enemy's coming out of the jungle now. They're coming toward us. Uh, and I'm still there on my knees with this enemy soldier in my hands. Uh, and uh, as they were coming through, some of the soldiers would bayonet some of the American soldiers and kill them. They maybe hadn't been dead yet, and they, they went and finished them off. So the entire platoon ended up being wiped out, save me. And uh, I was there, and so I just sat there on my knees as the soldiers came, closed in around me, um, and the officer in charge came up and started asking me questions that, of course, I didn't understand. He has to be a meter. I didn't understand. He had to be. So the pat phrase to do that says, no big. No big. I mean, I don't understand what you're saying. No big. Uh, and that didn't satisfy him very well. 
Uh, so he uh, he took his rifle butt and hit me across the face, across the nose. And that's where I now have this deviated septum that I'm going to have fixed later this year. Yeah. Uh, came from that incident. Uh, my septum in my nose now is at a right angle uh, because of that. Um, and proceeded to hit me several other times, uh, trying to solicit information. They took all of my clothes, took my uniform. They, they took uniforms off all of the soldiers. They used that in subterfuge later. They always would do that. They would take the soldiers' uniforms and use them to get closer into a base because you think it's an American coming up here or a South Vietnamese, which we provided the uniforms for. Right, right. Uh, and it turned out not to be. So <laughs> that was how you got the, what they now call blue-on-blue yeah. killings. Yeah. Uh, that's what started there. Uh, and so they, uh, uh, they, they came and took, my, took my uniform, took my aid bags, took my weapons, took everything I had, uh, left me there in my boxer shorts. And so, so I'm laying there, and so then he puts his rifle at my, at my head, Ugh. and the soldier did, but the, the, the commander did. And at that moment, you know, I figure, okay, I'm dead. This is it. Uh, this is my final, you know, you know they're finally getting me. Uh, but then I noticed up here, uh, the big white light up in the right-hand corner of my vision, and it's up here, and I, and I noticed it, but I didn't pay much attention because I was more concerned about this rifle pointed in my face. And it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The rifle never went off, but the light kept covering my entire vision. Finally covered my entire vision. All I could see was this bright white light. It's just the way you're looking at a light bulb. It's just like that. Um, and as that occurred, then a peace just came over me. Uh, fear, I mean, I just became peaceful. I couldn't hear anything, couldn't see anything, and it was just calm. I was just laying there. And I, I don't know how long that went on. It had to be for a while. Um, because all of a sudden, just in a split second, the wildlife was gone. It was just gone. And I'm laying there, and I look around. All the enemy soldiers are gone. The Americans are still laying here dead. They're just gone. Uh, I, to this day, don't know what happened there. But what I do know is that I was still alive. And so I crawled off into the jungle. David stood up. I just kind of crawled off into the jungle uh, in my boxer shorts and put mud all over my body, my head all the way to my feet. I just kind of went off down parallel to where the guys were. Where we were, there was, a, there was a jungle or wooded area, jungle area, that was in the shape of a U with a big clearing where the inside of the U would be, which is where the helicopters had dropped us off. And I knew that... They would not leave an entire platoon of American dead in this position that the Americans would come back in force and get us. And so I crawled off to the, one of the sides of the, rather than the base of the U, I was now on the right side of the U. And I just stayed there. You waited and for them to come back. Waited for, and they, I was there for three days. Now the enemy soldiers also knew that the Americans would come back for their dead. And so they were at the other side of the U. I didn't know this at the time, but they were patrolling all through there. And there were times during that three days that I was laying under jungle brush and I was laying in there covered totally with mud, uh, without food, without water, anything for three days, except water off of the leaves and stuff like that. Yeah. That they would come on patrol and they would walk within three or four feet of me and not see me. And you didn't even, you didn't know they were there? No, I knew they were there. Oh, you knew. I could hear them coming. Okay, okay, okay. I knew they were there. They didn't know I was there. Okay. They never saw me. Three days. This went on. And, uh. Finally, on the third day, 
helicopters came back to pick up, you know. Uh, and so, uh, and there were other soldiers with it, you know, to, for security for the people who were going to gather the remains. Well, as the helicopters are coming in, and this is a Huey, and anybody that is familiar with a Huey helicopter knows that when they come in for land, it's kind of like they skid in. Uh -huh. Now, the nose is up, the tail is down, and they just kind of like they're skidding in this way before they actually settle. Uh, so these were coming in, they had Cobra helicopter overhead, and the, the Huey heli helicopter came in to get us, had a 50 caliber machine gun on each window, each door, so they were ready for bear. Uh, and so then they came under fire when they came in. Uh, bad guys were shooting like crazy from the other side of you, and now I'm finding they were behind me shooting into the clearing. So the helicopters were getting fired from all sides. And they were getting ready to take off uh, to send in another way. And when I saw the helicopter begin to take off, I burst and ran. Ooh. I ran into the clearing and ran toward them, covered with mud, in my boxer shorts. And, Screaming your head And off. the door gunner sees me <clears throat> and starts firing over my head at the enemy soldiers that were behind me trying to cut me down. Uh, he fired over my head, and the helicopter skidded sideways to where I was at. I jumped up, wrapped my arms around the rung of that Huey helicopter, and it took off. With me hanging <laughs> on, the, on the rung, on the leg, the, what it sits huh. on, but hanging onto that for dear life. And they got about a thousand feet in the air before the door gunner finally stopped shooting and drug me into the helicopter. And I was rescued after three days in the jungle. To this day, that peace that God gave me there has never left. And if you ask my wife to this day, she will tell you that he never gets mad about anything. He, he, whatever happens, he just goes with it. She will worry about everything, uh -huh. and I worry about nothing. And I always tell her, I say, I don't worry about things. I concern myself with things and will work toward addressing the outcome of those things to the best I can, but I don't worry about them. You have a peace. The peace, peace that, that passes and that peace that the peace that he gave me there is that very peace that the Bible talks about that surpasses all understanding. And I can never explain that to anybody no more than the man in the moon because it surpasses all understanding. I don't understand it. And he gave it to me right there on that jungle floor. What was it like, Bill, after the war was were you sent home before the war was over? Or did yes. you Yeah. Yes. I uh I actually uh my third wound, I was in the hospital, and I came back to my unit after being released from the hospital. That's after being wounded three times. And at that time, I knew absolutely nothing about three verbal hearts, and you can go home like John Kerry. <laughs> like John Kerry knew about. Somehow. Uh -huh. I knew nothing about that. I was going back to the <laughs> John Kerry. <laughs> I, I knew nothing about that. Uh, so I was just going to go back to my unit and go back to the war. You know, I figured, you know, one of these times they're going to get me. I'm getting it really close now. They've gotten me three times. I've been here eight months, okay? They're going to get me. <laughs> so, uh, so I walk into my unit uh, headquarters there at uh, Long Bend. No, no, no. This was at Fuloy. By that time, we were in a place called Fuloy, which was further north and closer to the Cambodian border. And I walked back in there, uh, and the unit had stood down, which means that they, they had started the Vietnamization program, and they were bringing American troops slowly home. Okay. So our unit had gone home. The colors were gone, you know, the flags, the unit is no longer being on the Younger is now stateside somewhere. Uh, it was in Texas because it was for the first calf, uh, the division I was in. And so they, uh, so I went in there and the only people left was a major who was the battalion executive officer and two legal clerks. 
And so I walk in there, and they look, I'm surprised to see me, and say, Doc, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, well, they believe people in the hospital, they just dropped me off, I'm here, back to, go back to whatever. And they said, oh, well, well, uh, said, well, okay, well, the unit stood down. Uh, he said, let me, let me pull, he went over and looked, and he said, see, you've been here eight months. I said, yeah. And I guess that's all right. And he said, okay. Well, um, he said, well, I'll tell you, the unit stood down and went home. He said, and the way it's supposed to work is anybody that had less than nine months in country was reassigned to other units in, the, in Vietnam. Anybody with nine months or more uh, sent home. Sent yeah. them back to... to uh, You're to one the, month the, shy. Went huh? back to... And I was one month shy. And he said, uh, so, um, I'll tell you what. He said, it's easier for us to just cut your orders and send you home. Uh, he said, if you want, he said, we'll look for a unit and find a way to get you transported to that unit, cut orders to send you somewhere else in Vietnam. And I said, it's easier to send me home. I said, hey, I, but just take the easy way out and send me home. Send me home. And so after eight months in country. Country roads. I was home. And they sent me back and put me on a, a civilian airplane again. Uh, and I was home. What was that plane trip back? Oh, like? it was like, uh, and here again. These stewardess volunteer for this duty, okay? Uh, and the pilots as well. And so we're on the plane, and it's kind of quiet. Nobody's saying much. Taxi down the runway. Plane lifts off. We look out. We get up high enough. The plane just exploded into cheers, and, and people were just, you know, just like totally uh, excited. About, finally, they, they got out, and the stewardesses were, uh, uh, were free game. For these soldiers. <laughs> I mean, they hugged them. Nobody was disrespectful. But the stewardesses enjoyed it. The stewardesses wanted to welcome these boys that they had survived and made it home. Okay. And, and and there was, anybody, want anything you want to drink, you can have it, you know. Okay. And I drink okay. my Pepsis and they all had their whatevers they yeah. had, you know. And and, uh, and I was in the very back of the plane. I still had bruises on my face oh, wow. uh, from this incident. And so I was still what they considered walking wounded. And the walking wounded sat in the back of the plane. <laughs> so, Bill, I have to ask. Well, I don't, but I want to. Vietnam, you know, your dad. You said you sat down with your dad <clears throat> after you came back. He relayed everything that you went through, you know, point for point. Mm -hmm. You had that kind of reconnection there, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> this is very difficult for me to say. And, Somebody, somebody's going to be mad, but I think what I'm trying to say is World War II in Vietnam, those were two completely different wars. Absolutely. World War II, at least look, my view looking back on history, I don't know. You look at the Nazis mm -hmm. and all of the evil they were perpetrating, and it was kind of like they, all the soldiers going into it kind of had an idea of what they were fighting for. Somebody who was there in Nam. Did you did you go with a sense of what you were fighting for or against or? Um, when I went, um, uh, I was still in shock that I was going. Right. Uh, I was still in shock that I was in the army. I right. Couldn't, I couldn't reconcile that. As a, <laughs> you know, I have done everything I'm supposed to do. I've gone to church. I've paid tithes. I've I've given in the offerings. I've prayed people through the Holy Ghost. I do all these things in church. Right. Why am I here? Uh, <laughs> And so I was still trying to reconcile that, and I didn't worry at that point about geopolitical things, about what's going on. You just knew I'd been I just called. knew I had to go. I'd been called, and so I went. Uh, after a while, and after some of the experiences, and I saw what the communists were doing in Vietnam, 
then it made sense to me. We were fighting for something, and it was to make certain that the South Vietnamese people didn't fall prey to that. They ended up doing it anyway. So you found a reason but to fight. I found a reason to fight. I found a reason to be there. And not to mention the other reason was for my buddy next to me on either side. Right. Because they, they were probably drafted the same as you. Yeah. And yeah. so you were Most both, of them were. You the only ones who weren't drafted were the, the leadership. Right. Uh, you know, right. the sergeants had been in the service for a while. They were career men. Uh, and they were there to get a combat medical badge or a combat infantry badge. Did you face any uh, negativity when you came back home because of your involvement in NAM? Uh, yes, I did. Um, we, at that time, uh, my wife and I, we lived in Lafayette, Indiana. And I came home. And first of all, it's kind of interesting. Because I couldn't get a hold of her. I had. You couldn't it, get it, a hold? It was a quick trip. <laughs> it was a quick trip out of Vietnam. I had no chance to warn her, hey, I'm coming home, none of that kind of stuff. Uh, it was a quick trip out because they got me right back to the base. I'm right on a plane. I'm right into uh, the uh, airport. So you were uh, married when you left? Yes. Did oh, yeah. Did yes, you yes. have kids? No, I had no kids. I had no kids. But I was time. married when I left. married when you left. Yeah. Uh, married when I left. And then I went and we flew back into. We're supposed to fly back into Travis Air Force Base, uh, which is in Oakland. Um, that's where we flew out of. Uh-huh. Okay. But because the civilian airlines would come to Travis Air Force Base, lower us up, and then they were supposed to go back there, and then they'd go on to their civilian flights that they did. But Travis was fogged in. So we went across the bay and landed at San Francisco International Airport. Okay. Okay. Uh, somehow, and I don't know if this was routine, uh, but it was announced over the PA system that arriving at gate so-and-so, there's a flight of our American soldiers coming home from Vietnam so that people could welcome them if they wanted to. And we were indeed welcomed okay. uh, by a bunch of long, what we call long-haired freaky people uh, <laughs> that were spitting and carrying on yeah. uh, and hurling insults and all that kind of stuff. So the first GIs off the plane had all the fun. Uh, they mopped the floor with these people uh, 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 until, the, until the security police came from the airport and hauled them all away. So when I get off of the plane, these guys are brushing themselves off, you know, <laughs> And I see over in the distance where the long-haired freaky people are still hurling insults and all that kind of stuff as they're being drug away. <laughs> so that was my first welcome. So I go right away. I go to a, because I had no connections. I had no connecting here. They were just sending me home. They sent me back to Oakland. And from there, the military authorities were to get me home. Well, I didn't go to Oakland. We were in San Francisco. I had no connections. So I went and arranged for a flight to Indianapolis out of San Francisco. And I got that flight, got home in San Francisco. Uh, at this time, uh, I'm still bruised up. I am now 20 years old. And uh, uh, I get off and I go to get, I'm in Indianapolis, and I need to get to Lafayette. So I was going to rent a car. So I go into all of the car rental booths, and uh, they wouldn't rent me a car. Uh, I didn't have a credit card. Okay. Okay, for one thing. Uh, I wasn't 25 years old. Right. Nor was I a Sergeant D5. I'm standing there in uniform wanting to get home. They would not let me go They couldn't home. help you. They couldn't help me out. And I was like, I argued with Avis. I argued with all, all down the line. And so I finally just, I'm down there and I'm, I was down the line. All the stuff is on the counter. Yeah. I just grabbed and knocked it all off on the floor. I was just throwing stuff all off on the floor to where the car rental agency done. That end saw me coming and they started taking stuff off of the counters and putting it down below. <laughs> and so then I see the security police coming now after me. And so I take out the door jump on a city bus to go downtown. Downtown. Indianapolis. Indianapolis. And I tell the bus driver what's going on. And he said, 
that's not right. You know, he was he was angry about the whole thing. I'm telling the bus driver, I said, right behind him as he's hauling me down. He said, well, I'll fix that, but we'll just take you to the Greyhound bus station. They'll get you home. So he took me down to the Greyhound bus station, and the bus driver paid for my Greyhound ticket from Indianapolis to Lafayette. Oh. And so then, but all this time, my wife still doesn't know I'm coming. <laughs> I had not been able to get a hold of her by phone or anyway. And so I get to the bus station in Lafayette, Indiana, and I finally get a hold of her. I call her from there, and I finally said, I said, I'm, I'm home. I'm coming home. I'm home. And she said, well, where are you? I said, I'm at the bus station right here in Lafayette. No, you're not. Yeah, I am. Yeah. But at this time, mind you, I had weighed 160 pounds when I left. I came home from Vietnam at 116 pounds, and my face was all bruised up. <laughs> and so, so she pulls up, she and I walk out of the bus station with my duffel bag over my shoulder. She didn't recognize me. She drove off. I dropped my bag and started running, hollering, hollering, hey, wait, wait, wait. In fact, she brought her dad because she thought it was a trick. And so they, and so they finally stopped. I said, it's me, it's me, it's me. And so, uh, so then they finally took me home. <laughs> uh, and so I was, give, I was on a, a 30-day leave, and, um, and she and I go to the laundromat. Uh, just across, where from they live, just right across the river, right across the bridge to West Lafayette. Well, of course, West Lafayette is on Purdue University, right. and so a lot of students over there. I have, a, I guess, there's been a lot of anti-war protesting going on. So we were there doing laundry, and uh, and we were just talking, you know, yeah. not loud, loud, just softly talking. And there was this other lady over here doing laundry, and so um, we've got stuff out of the washer. We've some of it's in the dryer, some of it's not, and in the basket, still waiting to go to a dryer. And uh, this girl comes over and, and says. Um, she says, I uh, overheard you saying that you're a uh, soldier, you're just home. I was in Sibius at this point. Yeah. You're just home from Vietnam? And she said, I said, uh, well, that's true, yes. And so then she spit in my face in the laundromat in West Lafayette, Indiana. And so I'm standing up shocked, you know, so I wiped it off my wife. I said, you know, at this point, it's a good thing you're a woman because if you were a man, I'd knock you down right here and pound you. And my wife's standing there and said, well, I'm a woman, and she cold-cocked her one. Uh under the jaw, <laughs> just right up, cold cock her. She did not see it coming. Oh, wow. And she wow. stumbled backwards, fell over a laundry basket, and fell onto the floor. <laughs> I said, oh, we're breaking out of here. So yeah. we grabbed up our basket, went and got in the car and left. <laughs> so, yes. Oh, I, my word. So I did experience some of the negativity uh, uh, that was given to the soldiers. At that point. And that went on for a while. That went on for a while. It wasn't, it was a number of years before the American population finally got past the point of blaming the soldiers for Vietnam and instead of blaming the politicians. Yeah. You, uh, you stayed in the military, you said, until right after 9-11? I actually, uh, after my two-year hitch was up, I got out. Oh, you got out? I got out of service, and I was out for six months. I couldn't find a decent job, and they called me, wanting to know if I'd come back in. In fact, they asked me to join the National Guard. So I did. I joined the National Guard. Okay. Uh, and then... A year after being in the National Guard, I'm sent back to active duty again. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, so I wasn't in Vietnam anymore. I was done with that. But I did go back in, and so I did stay in the military for uh, a total now then of 27 years. Wow. Uh, retiring uh, as a lieutenant colonel um, in the early 2000s. Wow. And, and was, uh, so I was, I had just retired uh, when 9-11 occurred. Uh, just retired. I hadn't been retired in three or four months. And so when that happened, uh, I, I was 
I was still sitting at home. I, uh, at that point in time, I was off work for something the day 9-11 occurred, and I was sitting on the sitting at home. I saw the whole thing unfold on uh, on the news, on yeah. television, and so I was like, I was angry. Uh, it made me so angry. I wanted to go right back in and find somebody right then and there to take out because of what they were doing to our country. That sense of justice. That came sense back, of, yeah. it came back again, and I was I was ready. I wanted to do it, and so uh, so I almost had my chance because <laughs> as General Schwarzkopf was gathering forces in Saudi Arabia uh, to uh, revenge going into uh, Afghanistan, when he was gathering forces to go, I, I was like, I think I might. Yeah, and so they put me on red alert. Uh, when they actually, when they went to, uh, and they were going to do Gulf Storm, I was put on alert. Uh, but I didn't have to go. They were expecting many, many, many more casualties than what we had early on. So, so I never did. Wow. Uh, go back. So I was in, uh, when they had the Bosnia thing going on, mm-hmm. I was over there for just a short while as a aerial observer uh-huh. uh, in a helicopter where I would call in. You know, I would see where the bad guys were shooting mortars or from whatever, and, and I would call in artillery fire on them. So I did that for a while. And I had a forty-five then too, uh, and I remember they were shooting at us at our helicopter with pistols. Yeah, so I fired back at them with my pistol. Now okay. nobody's pistol around was going to hit anybody because we were too far away. Yeah, but I said, "I'll show you." I'll be yeah. shooting back at my point. Yeah, <laughs> ain't just going to sit here and take it. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, uh, but there were lots. Of, there were lots of things. Uh, yeah. life happened in Vietnam. I was a totally changed person when I came out of that experience. Life happened in Vietnam, but I think it's fair to say life continued after Vietnam. It did. It did. Life continued. I I continued to evolve. But the biggest change uh, came from the service, the military. The military changed me into somebody totally different than what I had been when I graduated from high school. It's, it's It's so ironic to say that you found that peace while you were in the military. While I was in combat. While you had a gun to your head. In a combat zone, <laughs> I found that peace. Ain't it just like the Lord? I just like him to do that. I tell you, it's just like that. Oh, uh, man. So when, when did you become a father? Uh, I was home from Vietnam, oh, my goodness, uh, a couple of years after I was home. I became, I had Our first daughter was born. You have how many kids? I, there are five altogether. have... Uh, Three girls and two boys. I, I, uh, my first wife uh, decided she, after 10 years of being home from Vietnam, she decided that she no longer wanted to be in church. And so she slowly backslid. Uh, and it was intent on me backsliding too. And when I let her know in no uncertain terms that I wasn't going anywhere, yeah. then she left me. Okay. Uh, and so I was divorced for a long while. Can I ask you another rude question? Certainly. Because um, even back then, divorce... No, even today, divorce is a big deal, in right. my opinion. Right. But back then, it's very much of a faux pas. Mm-hmm. Uh, was there kind of, a, for lack of a better term, a weird reaction from your church that you were divorced? Or was uh, there understanding? There was understanding because they saw the graduality of what was happening. Okay. Uh, they saw it happen. Uh-huh. Uh, they saw her leaving, and they saw the impact. I was in the altar every service, praying for my family, trying to... God to help me get it back together. What do I need to do? Right. Where am I going wrong here? What? And and they saw that. Uh, as they saw her not come, not wanting anything to do with it, and slowly distancing herself. She cut her hair. She started wearing lipstick. She wore jewelry. Uh, she did all these things while still coming to church. So they saw it happening. And uh, so when she finally just well, cut yeah, and left, they, well, they saw. So they saw things because that wasn't something that was. 
I'm trying to put this into perspective for people who are listening who are not familiar with uh, certain church standards. So at the church that you were attending, that was not a part of the – that was not standards. That were just kind of like – No, it wasn't. They, were, they, were, they asked you to just stray away from anything that was associated with the world pretty much, correct? Yes, exactly. Okay. So when she started getting closer and closer to looking more and more like you know, yeah. everybody else on the street, mm-hmm. then – the church kind of recognized that. They recognized what was going on, and they recognized, uh, uh, evidenced by what I was doing, uh, that I was trying to, and, and I refused, and she let it be known to other ladies in the church that she didn't uh, believe anymore, she didn't want this or that, you know, and that, uh, that she wanted me to leave the church with her and just go. Yeah. And uh, and she told them that he, he says he won't do it. I'm going to convince him, but he, he said he's not going to do it. So she was very out if you will, and what her intentions were. Uh, different women in the church knew very well, uh, and I'm sure they told others. So that when I didn't go, they realized what was coming, yeah. probably before I did. Wow. Uh, and so they they wrapped their arms around me, tried to wrap their arms around her. She had nothing to do with it. So when she left, they wrapped their arms around me and just kept me close wow. so that it didn't destroy me, even though it very well could. How long after the divorce until you met Claudia? I had known uh, Claudia since high school. Really? We were in the same rally groups. I didn't know that. We were in the same rally groups. I had known her uh, for years. Uh, and so I met, uh, I met her, uh, well, I, well, I mean, again, met her because we both worked in the same vicinity downtown. I worked at Wisher Hospital and she was at IU. We found that out. And so I met her uh, after we were going back to the Brownsburg Church where we were going uh, when my wife left. And she was going there. Okay, so I knew her from that as well. But I had known her since high school. And so then she ended up, uh, when her husband uh, left her, uh, very similar things, reasons. Um, we just kind of somehow, I mean, we, were friend, we were friends, had been friends. And that's why I tell a lot of young people today, I say, you know, you should be friends before you get married. Be yeah. friends. Know them. Get to know them. Yeah. Know all about them. Know yeah. what, they're, what they believe, how they feel, what they think about this, what they think about that. Know them Yeah. before you link with them because you want a link to last right. for life and pray to God that it does. Right. But know them first. Be friends. Get to know them. Uh, and so I always tell them. And so I knew Claudia. I knew her. And so... Y'all uh, of the... Cutest couple, and so here, here at Calvary, just but it, it's it's just wonderful to watch you two walk hand in hand in church, and then, yeah, yeah, she's so soft spoken, she is, and you are so at least your church, and she you is. are yeah, at least here at church, and you are you are so extroverted, yeah. but still so kind. That's the thing; nobody would have ever known, you know, nobody. You don't wear your experiences. Um, no, I don't. You don't. Um, I, uh, for the, for the longest time and, and, and God has still worked with me through all of these different things. And I can tell you a story now about how I finally came to grips with my combat experiences. Okay. Um, it was, this was years and years later. This was probably. Does it have to do with like the pastor and, and the why? No, yeah, actually, no, it was well after that. Oh, well okay. after that. Uh, I'm sitting in an airport getting ready to go on a cruise, a Caribbean cruise. And, uh, and at that time, you could go with just your birth certificate. You didn't have to have a passport. 
you can use your birth certificate as proof of citizenship and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so you take your birth certificate with you on. I was sitting, I was waiting for the plane to board to fly out uh, here in Indianapolis, and I'm sitting there and I'm just looking at my. That was the my birth certificate, and I'm looking at you there, and I looked at that and saw because I was born on August the 29th. Okay, August the 29th, the lottery number for being drafted was like 32. So I was like gone. They took all of the years, 365 days a year in a hat, and just draw them out. Okay, and so August the 29th was the 32nd number drawn out. Uh. I was gone. August the 30th was 300 and something. They never drafted August 30th, the year I was drafted. August the 29th, but not the 30th. So I'm looking at my birth certificate. And I look at my birth certificate and I say, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, uh, and my parents are all here. August 29th, yeah. Time of birth, 11.59 p.m. Uh, and I'm looking at that. I said, what? I look at it again. I'm born on August the 29th at 11.59 p.m. For the lack, sake of one minute, I would never have been drafted. All of this stuff would never have happened. And I'm like, that's it. That's it. I don't know if I was born at 11.59 p.m. or not. I don't know. Maybe the doctor just, maybe the clock was stopped. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it was running slow. Uh, maybe he just needed one more delivery for that day to set the record and have eight <laughs> instead of seven. I don't know, but I firmly to this day believe that God put 11.59 on that birth certificate to tell me I can put you in the fire and I'll take you out of the fire. It's not in your control. I got you. And I got to tell you, I sat there in that airport and cried when I saw that because all of the perceived whatever little bit of bitterness there was about what my pastor had done 30 years before or had not done all melted away. Yeah. It was gone. Yeah. And I was like, my Lord, you did all of this. Yeah. You did this to teach me and make me what I am today. You did. I'm sitting there talking to myself with my arms out like this. Praising God because I got 1159 on my birth certificate. <laughs> People around the airport are kind of like getting away from me, staying away from me. But, uh, but uh, it, it all made sense at that point. And I got to tell you, uh, even though I may not have felt it, and even though I may not have been able to touch God myself during those days because I was scared or whatever, God had it all under control. Had his hand he put on me, you. He put me in Vietnam. Yeah. He let me go through this experience yeah. so I could learn from these experiences, learn life lessons as well as lessons for other people, uh, learn me to learn that God has me in his hand and he will shield me from what I need shielded from and put me into what I need to be into to learn more about his deliverance, his control, how he has my life in his hands. He gave me a peace on the Vietnam battlefield that today is total and complete in my life to where I have, uh, I would take a bullet before I would deny this truth. I would take a bullet. I would stand right up there and say, shoot me now. I will not deny this because God has shown me all through these years and all this different, all these different times of, of think, have I been perfect all that time? Absolutely not. Have I slipped up and fallen? I sure have. Uh, and would freely admit to him. But overall, through the whole thing, God has delivered me and kept me to the point to where I was never close to backsliding. I messed up a few times. Oh, yeah, I did all that kind of, yeah, I did that. But I wasn't going anywhere because, because God had shown me. And he gave me the peace. He had shown me all of this and what he can do 
for us in our lives. And I had nowhere to go. There was nowhere else to go There's to get nowhere that. better. There's nowhere else to There's go to get what I've got. Better. Nothing better than this. Uh, and, and so since that time, I have just been like, wow, look at here. I wake up today and wow, I know, I know for a fact that I should be dead. And I'm not. I should have died at the age of 19 on a Vietnam battlefield. I didn't. I'm here today. I should be dead, and I'm not. I wake up every day with that realization, and it gives me a peace to face every day. I, 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 I just, I'm comfortable. I he just, gave you a peace, you know, it, it's amazing. He gave you a peace, not just on the battlefield, but he gave you that to carry you through outside of war. Absolutely. People came out of that war torn apart. Torn apart. Absolutely. Torn did. apart, their souls in shatters. Yeah. But you came out whole. Whole. And having been wounded three times, I still came out with my, my most of the time, my mind's in the right place. Okay? <laughs> most of the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, you know. Uh, but uh, he just took total, complete care of me. And uh, what do you say? I mean, what can you say about that? Uh, you know, I've often told my wife, you know, that the English language is, um, it, it is not enough. It's not enough. You can't, the, the words aren't there. Uh, but all I can say is, is thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I know how to say thank you because he, he, he done so much. He's done so much to deliver me and to keep me. Uh, in his, and I, I think back often of the three Hebrew children. And I, and I go to that story because they did everything right. They prayed. They faced the temple. They prayed every day. They did all the things right. Right. Uh, they, they paid homage to the king. They did what they were supposed to do. They paid their money, whatever they had to do. But somewhere along the way, even after, even though they'd done everything right, they were thrown in the fire. But when the king looked in the fire, he didn't see the three children. He saw a fourth. He saw God walking with them in the fire. And you know what? Yeah. He walked with me when I was in the fire. I see it now. I couldn't see it then. I see it today. Some through the fire, some through the waters, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all oh, through the, the blood. blood. Absolutely. God. And yeah, you know, it, some through great sorrow, but God gives a song. Yeah. In the night season and all the day long. Right. And so, so today, uh, I sing in the shower. <laughs> you know, sometimes I come out of the back room and Claudia is standing in the living room and I'll go over there and I just take her by the hand, twirl her around and walks through the living room. You're a, uh, I'm just, you are a happy man. I'm, I'm happy. You're alive. I'm alive. And I know that I should be dead. Amen. I know I should be dead. But you're not. And I had someone ask me at one point in time, do you think that they pulled the trigger and, and, and the weapon jammed? I said, I don't know. Could be. Maybe that's why they all ran Isn't away. That, the weapon wouldn't shoot. Uh, it's almost a better testimony to know that y you don't know. I don't know. You don't know what happened. I don't know anything. All I know is the white light. I the light was there, it. and when you when you came out of it, it was taken they care of. It was taken care of. They were gone. I don't know what. Now happened. you're still left. Now the Lord could have left you some pants. That would have been nice. <laughs> that would have been a handy thing to have right there, uh, because that yeah that yeah. was you know, awkward three days in the jungle without just just your boxers work. Colonel. I want to thank you for sharing your testimony. It has been unbelievable to hear. It's been moving to me, and I know it's going to be a blessing to everyone who hears this. And I know, I know I've cut you short because I know you've had so much incredible life experience that we could share, and yeah. I'd, I'd hope to have you back someday. Would that be all that right? That would be fun. 
Let me shake your hand one more time. Well, I appreciate you, you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate you and everything you do for the church here. I'm happy to just jump in wherever I can. Well, God's good. And I'm so, I'm blessed that I get to work so closely with you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I was truly blessed sitting down and hearing that man's testimony. Uh, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged and uh, I realize how blessed and highly favored I am just to be a child of God. You are loved. I hope you got that today. You are loved. God loves you. He knows right where you're at. You are in His hands. And if you need peace, ask Him for it. Pray to Him right now. Because He has it for you. He's waiting on you. He loves you. I love you. And I'm so glad you joined us today. I want to thank my guest, uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Fullerton, retired. Um, Thank him for taking the time to sit down with us. Um, I want to also thank Cole Beaver and Dr. Lyndall Anderson for, for, for providing the music today. And, uh, of course, Vito Giovanni for allowing us the use of his studio, Studio 238 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Of course, I want to thank Kevin Brzezinski for his uh, guidance and encouragement. I want to also thank Julia Ranking for all of her encouragement to get this thing started forever indebted to both of them. Oh, man. My next guest for episode 19 is none other than Reverend Christopher Henderson. Topher Henderson is a good friend of mine, and he has an awesome testimony. Like everyone that I have on here, he has a story that you need to hear, and I know you're going to enjoy it. I want to remind you, I did forget an announcement up front, that uh, make sure if you are down in the Louisville area to stop by uh, General Conference, take part. If you're in the Midwest, come on down. I know you're going to enjoy it. I will be at the My Hope Radio booth uh, Wednesday and hopefully Thursday. Definitely Wednesday. I'll be down there, and uh, we're going to have a great time. be interviewing some past contestants in the talent show that My Hope Radio puts on during uh, national... North, uh, I'm sorry, North American Youth Congress. It's and you know what? <laughs> I hope I'm not building this up too much. I really uh, don't have a plan. <laughs> if someone shows up, we'll talk to them, and uh, it's going to be great because it's uh, to be determined. Appreciate you all, man. I just hope you all stuck with that today. God's going to see you through it. He can bring you through whatever trial comes in your way. It doesn't matter what it is. If he can, if, if I'm serving the same God, which I know I am, that William Fullerton was serving in Vietnam, y'all, we're in good hands. All right. So until then, I want you to know I love you. Keep thinking on the good things. Hotsy dotsy, hotsy dotsy do, just like a tweet that's planted by the water. Hotsy dotsy do.